0: Thank you, Jan, God's forgiveness this morning, forgiveness that not only deals with our sin, but it gives us the ability to handle it when others have have sinned against us. Well, please turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. As you turn there, just a couple of encouragements. One, this Wednesday night, we're having a fellowship at the farmhouse. Encourage you to to come to that let the church office know you'll be attending. It's going to just be a great time for us to, to spend some time together eating my favorite activities and, and fellowshipping, a secondary activity that I also enjoy, and giving us some, some good time of, of good, uh, good Christian relationships there. Again, turning to Ephesians chapter 4, one other note uh, next Sunday, I'm going to be at, at Bethany Baptist Church, and, and Pastor Rich Burkle will be uh, preaching here. We're doing a, every, our goal is to every Memorial Day weekend to, to do a, a pulpit swap and, and uh, to continue that relationship with Bethany Baptist Church. And then the week after that, uh, Pastor Phil Summers will be here, and I will I will be on vacation actually. And then uh, three weeks from today, we're going to to turn to Ephesians chapter five, and uh, we're going to be talking about s- several issues in Ephesians chapter five, including uh, sexual immorality. And uh, the message is going to be rated uh, a light PG. Okay, and so if if that is a concern for you as as a parent with with younger children, I just wanted you to be aware of that. It's going to be handled in a way that I believe age-appropriate discussion could, could take place in your home. Our children, who are, uh, our children who are six and eight, will, will be in the service with us, and so I, I think it'll be handled in a very appropriate way. But just for you as a parent to have that, that freedom to, to determine uh, the type of exposure your children have to, to subjects, uh, again, I believe it's very appropriate, but just so that you're aware of that. Please stand with me as we conclude Ephesians chapter 4. Together this this morning, we've been spending quite a few weeks, months talking through Ephesians chapter four, specifically this last part of Ephesians chapter four, talking about this new life that we have in Jesus Christ, as we have been created to be a, a new creature through placing our faith in Him alone. We're going to look at verses 17 through 24, and then conclude by turning down to chapter to uh, chapter four, verses 31 and 32. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Verse 17. about him is in truth, is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Then verse 31 applies it to this area of relationships. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for relationships. Thank you for the relationship that we have with. You, through your Son, Jesus Christ, thank you for this community that you have created. It is your church. And Father, we know that relationships can be a very fragile thing. We pray that your grace would be exhibited in our lives as we think about our relationship with other believers, that you would preserve the bond of unity, you would cause us to walk in a way that brings honor and glory majesty to your name. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for the things we've done that have damaged our relationship with you. Father, we we turn from those those things. We turn from self-worship and we turn to to worship you anew this morning. And Father, as we experience your grace, allow us to exhibit that grace to others, to forgive, to love, to care for others. And we pray that you work in our hearts through your word, the work of your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. The great thing about being an associate pastor on staff at a church for eight years is that over eight years you accumulate a a wealth of sermon illustration material. The downside of being a church plant pastor is you take your sermon illustrations with you. And so you can't use them on a Sunday morning, perhaps, as you would like to because the people you'd be referring to are either in the seats in front of you or they know the people that you're talking about. So that's the downside of becoming a church plant pastor. But this morning we're talking about relationships and moving beyond bitterness within our relationships with other believers, and I don't think I need to give you a lot of illustrations to describe what this looks like. My guess would be that each one of us can can think of of conflicts and the relationships in which we've experienced. In fact, I would imagine that Maybe even a, not too far into my message already, you're thinking of a, a, rela- a conflict you've had in a relationship with someone. And In fact, think about that. Think about a, a situation you've been in in which there's been some sort of relational disagreement, some sort of separation, division in your relationship with another believer in Christ. It could be an argument that's happened. It could be a discussion that just kind of went awry. It could be a short discussion kind of conflict that's occurred, or perhaps even a more long-term breach of relationship. Imagine, if you will, perhaps even the situation where you're in a conversation with another believer, and the conversation turned south, and words became very sharp and and pointed, and in your conversation with these people, this person that anger kind of welled up within you, and you could kind of sense a little anger in this other person, and as you had this conversation, you both walked away from it, and now the question is, what do you do next? Okay, this breach in relationship has has taken place. There's there been some hard words spoken, and and how do you do you move beyond this this conflict that has occurred? Do you continue to think about it? Do you allow it to fester? Do you confront the person with more angry shouting? Do you just talk about it to other people? How do you move beyond these? These hurt feelings that have existed in this relationship between you and another believer. How do you handle conflict in Christ's church? Earlier in the book of Ephesians, we've talked about the the theological reality of unity. We've seen that Christ himself has created unity within his church through the, the death resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, barriers have been done away with, and, and now, theologically, there's a, a unity that exists between brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, Christ himself has created this unity, and yet, experientially, we struggle with relationships. We struggle with conflicts with other believers. And so, so how, what are, what are some practical ways that we foster unity whenever breach of unity begun to occur. How do we handle bitterness? How do we handle resentment? We've already seen here in Ephesians chapter 4 that there's a old way of doing things. Before we placed our faith in Jesus Christ there was a, a way in which we walked, a way in which we lived, and, and Paul has been talking about practical ways in which we, we put off the practices that used to be true of us. And now, because we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, alone for the forgiveness of our sins, now there's been a a new heart created within us. Now we are are new creatures, and as as new creatures, there's a a new way that we desire to do things. And so Paul is saying, now you need to live like who you are. Live like who you are in Christ, and, and here's how you do it. You put off these attributes, these characteristics, and put on the attributes, the practices of a believer I believe that we're going to see in this text that the person who has this new heart, a person who's a believer, has a heart that has experienced forgiveness, has a heart that has experienced God's grace. And so the heart of a believer, I believe the central idea of the text is this, the heart of a believer should be a soft heart. The heart of a believer is a heart that's experienced God's grace, and so it should be a, a soft heart that is so familiar with grace, so full of, of the grace that it's received from God that, that when you squeeze that heart, it's like graciousness oozes out of it, okay? And so whenever you're in a conflict with another believer... Both of you should have experienced God's grace in such a way that as, as times kind of test that relationship, as, as conflict begins to occur, as things kind of squeeze that relationship, it's like grace just oozes out of it. We've put off resentment and the characteristics of resentment. We'll talk about that in just a minute. And we are to put on graciousness because we as believers have received the grace of God. And because we've received the grace of God, we have a radically new life. Now, I want to warn you about something here, okay? I don't want to be mean to you. Some of you may think this is mean regardless. It's not. It's loving. Uh, trust me. Here's what I'm going to do to you, uh, for you. At the end of our time here this morning, we're going to partake of communion together, okay? Okay? Now, let me read you a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about partaking of the Lord's Supper together. Paul is talking to them about the Lord's Supper, and he's kind of upset with the Corinthians about how they're partaking of the Lord's Supper, and he says this. He says, "Um, when you come together, verse 17 to 1 Corinthians 11, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. There are factions among you, he says in verse 19. Then he warns them about the dangers of having factions within the church and partaking of the Lord's Supper. He says this in verse 27, Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so what I'm going to encourage you to do is we're going to talk about what relational purity in the church looks like. And before we partake of the Lord's Supper, my my encouragement to you is going to be this. I'm going to encourage you not to partake of the Lord's Supper until you have committed in your heart to the Lord to heal, as much as as is possible with you, to heal any breach of relationship that exists between you and your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I'm not asking you to, before you partake of the Lord's Supper, stand up and, and you know, uh, ask so-and-so to forgive you. You know, there would be a long line here, and I couldn't get through them all. But, uh, or the other way around, I probably need to ask more forgiveness than receive. But and I, I'm, not saying, uh, I'm not saying you need to do that, but I'm saying before you partake of the Lord's Supper this morning, do you make the, the commitment in your heart to God. Look, in fact, some of you are probably already thinking of names, right, of, of people that there's been a, a breach in a relationship with. And say, so, you know what, Lord? My commitment before I partake of the Lord's Supper this morning is to do what's necessary to begin to restore that relationship with this brother or sister in Christ. Well, central idea of the text, again, is that our hearts should be soft, full of grace, and so when those hearts are squeezed, graciousness oozes out of them. We're going to first of all talk about how to put off resentment, and then we're going to talk about how to put on graciousness. Put off resentment, put on graciousness. Let's first talk about how to put off resentment look at verse 31 Paul says this let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice and and all those words bitterness wrath anger clamor slander malice all are, are referencing relational uh, things that you do in a relationship that damage that relationship and in fact I think that Paul is talking here about a uh, characteristics that that show that that resentment exists in a relationship characteristics that show that that resentment is there. And I think that the tendency of believers very often is to deny that there is any resentment in a relationship, and we use code words to describe what really should be called resentment and bitterness. And we say, you know what, uh, this this guy and I, you know, we have we have personality differences, okay, or or there's just kind of a. You know, we just kind of have to agree to not get along, or I just can't see that person without getting angry. And so we're failing to deal with real relational problems that exist between other believers because we don't want to call sin, sin. There are at least three categories in verse 31 that Paul describes that show us that we have a resentful heart. Let me give you three characteristics of a resentful heart here in verse 31. The first category, the first characteristic of a resentful heart is that a resentful heart is betrayed by its actions. A resentful heart is betrayed by its, I'm sorry, by its attitude. A resentful heart is betrayed by its attitude. Do you want to know whether or not you have a resentful heart? Look at your attitude toward another believer. Paul says here in verse 31 that there is bitterness in the heart of a person who is resentful toward another believer. There's, there's bitterness. Now, Let's think a little bit about bitterness before we continue here. As we think about the attitude, a resentful heart is betrayed by its attitude. Bitterness often begins by a wrong being done against us, either real or simply perceived. A person says a word to us, or does an action to us, or or we think that they that they we think that they've done something that that's wrong against us, or maybe we're even just kind of jealous of some success that that they have achieved, that, that we believe that we should have achieved. And so there begins to be this, this bad feeling in our heart toward this other person. And at this moment, I, I think we need to, when that happens, determine what kind of action this is. Is it, is it an action that we need to, to confront them on, or is it simply a problem within our own hearts? For example, First Peter 4.8 says that, that love covers a multitude of sins. And so sometimes when another believer has wronged me, I, have, I need to look at it and say, you know what? the real sin here isn't necessarily what this person has done against me. I don't think they're aware of what they did. I certainly don't think they, they meant to hurt me. It, it was unintentional. And, and really, the problem here is me. The problem here is I don't love this person as much as I need to. And, and God, please change my heart and allow love, the love that I have for this believer in Christ, to, to cover this sin. And I think this is especially true whenever we have a very close relationship with someone, you know, maybe a best friend. We are sinful people, and we are going to be constantly doing sinful things in our relationships. And if every sin that we do is, is being, con- or sin that done against us is being considered and written down on a, this, this, this mental notepad, it's going to be a very tough relationship to maintain. For example, a husband and wife relationship. In a husband and wife relationship, if a husband and wife are constantly confronting each other over every tiny sin that's ever been committed against each other, that is going to be one terrible place to be in. I don't want to say terrible marriage, but chances are it's not very great, okay? In a marriage relationship, ideally what's happening is if, if you know, I, as the husband, am more aware of, of how I'm failing my wife than thinking about how my wife is failing me, and, and love covers a multitude of, of sins, okay? And so sometimes, whenever a wrong has been done against us, it's, if we're noticing that really the problem isn't the person, they didn't mean to do anything, love just needs to cover that. But that's not always the case. Sometimes sin needs to be confronted, and it falls into Matthew 18. If a brother sins against you, you need to go to that person and say, look, I, I, my understanding is that you, you sinned against me in this area. Now, maybe I don't understand the full situation. Maybe whenever you, you slap me in the face, you're trying to get a mosquito. I, I'm not sure, but it seems kind of to me like, like there's a breach in our relationship, and I, I don't like a breach in our relationship. I, I'd like to deal with it, okay? So you, you need to confront it. Oftentimes, our attitude is, you know what, this guy over here, he wronged me, and if he wants this relationship to get better, he better come and ask me for forgiveness. That, that's not the biblical instruction to us. Scripture says, if your brother wrongs you, you go to him. Now, if you've wronged someone, you also need to go to them and ask for forgiveness, but, but it's also incumbent upon the person who's been wronged to seek out forgiveness, A resentful heart, remember, is betrayed by its attitude, Paul says, put off all bitterness here at the beginning of verse verse 31. What happens after we've been wronged is sometimes we begin to think about it, and we dwell upon it. And every time we think about that person, we think about that situation. And for me, I kind of like replay a situation back in my mind, and I think about the words that they said, and I think about it as kind of a debate and as, as I play it back over and over in my mind, I become like this, this noble, heroic figure, okay? And I forget all the bad things I said, and I magnify the, the bad things that the other person said until I, by, the, by the time I'm done, I'm like Jimmy Stewart and Mr. Smith goes to Washington, standing against the evil empire of whoever wronged me, you know, being this majestic, righteous figure. That's resentment. That's bitterness. A person who has a, a bitter heart, a bitter attitude towards someone, uh, doesn't like to even talk about that other person, Someone else says that person's name to them and there's kind of like this uh, that kind of goes off in your, your spirit. You don't like hearing about good things happening to that person. All those are signs of a bitter heart towards someone showing your attitude comes from a resentful heart. A resentful heart is betrayed by its attitude that it must be put off. secondly, a resentful heart is betrayed by its anger. A resentful heart is betrayed by its anger. We talked about anger a few weeks ago. Look at verse 31 again. He says, Let all bitterness be put away, and wrath and anger. Really, those are synonymous terms. Some of your translations may say rage and anger. The idea there is if there's any separation between those two terms, I think what Paul is saying is that sometimes this. And this anger manifests itself as just this, this outburst. This, you know, it's like you're going supernova on a guy. You're just yelling at him. You know, if, you're, if you're yelling at someone, chances are you're not too happy at them. That shows you have a resentful heart. <laughs> or if there's like this seething, quiet rage that you feel toward a person. And you're controlling it. But boy, you are not happy about that situation. Again, we talked about anger a couple weeks ago and all the manifestations of, of anger. But that betrays a resentful heart as well. A resentful heart is betrayed by its attitude. It's betrayed by its anger. It's also betrayed by its speech. It's also betrayed by its speech. Look what he says next. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. A clamor means to, to shout or, or to yell and, and you're yelling at a person and you're speaking very harshly toward them or, or you're slandering this person. And so you, you, you go and, and you realize that this, the situation with a brother or sister in Christ isn't going very well, and, and the conversations you have with them aren't going very well. But in your heart, as you walk away from that situation, you're still resenting it, and there's nothing you can do to change that person. But, but uh, as much as it's possible with you, you're going to change how other people perceive that person. So you go and, and you share... Maybe you don't even use their name sometimes, but you just want to vent against this person, so you tell, you tell other people about this wrong that was done against you. Or maybe you, you do want people to know about what a terrible person that person is. You, hey, you know what? Have you noticed that, have you noticed that Daniel has real kind of has a real, has a real uh, problem with his speech, huh? We need to pray for him because it's so terrible. And have you noticed that he, you know, uh, he just doesn't have a lot of patience with people, does Have you noticed that too? Or maybe I just, what you're doing, you're slandering another person you're slandering, you're trying to perceive how other people view another believer in Christ. Very often, these characteristics manifest themselves in very, you know, sin is very creative. Like, for example, our, remember, resentful heart is betrayed by its anger. Sometimes we don't even exhibit the anger against the person that has wronged us. A kid comes home sees the, the cat on the living room floor, sends it sailing, you know, yells at mom, yells at dad, pushes his brother. They're not even angry at the people that they're, they're lashing out against. They're angry at some kid at school that was a bully. And yet that resentful heart betrays itself by its, its anger. Resentful heart betrays itself by its attitude, by its anger, by its speech. You and I need to be very careful about the words that we use concerning our brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul sums up all these characteristics with this. He says, he says put, put away bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander along with all malice, any sort of, of hatred or, or ill feeling toward another Christian, toward another brother or sister in Christ. If any of, the tr- if any of those characteristics are true of you, You have bitterness in your heart toward another believer. You're angry at another believer. You notice that your speech about another believer is wrong. Understand this. You are in sin. You are in sin in that relationship. The resentment in your heart is leading you down a very dangerous path. Christ has purchased his church with his blood. And he loves that person with whom you're angry, with whom you're resentful toward. And his call on you is to repent of that resenting attitude, that bitterness, that anger, that unbiblical speech and to restore that relationship. The amazing thing about our hearts is is this. Someone can do something terrible to us. I I mean, terrible, fill in the blank. Someone just does something incredibly wrong against you, and you can be in sin. (laughs) A brother in Christ can come and just do some, some terrible things to you And sure, that's wrong, it's sinful, but you're also in sin as you respond to it in an unbiblical way. The enemy and our hearts are amazingly creative at turning our hearts to sin. Paul says all those things, all those things our habits, our characteristics of who you used to be apart from faith in Jesus Christ, and now it's a new day. Because of this new heart that you have, it's time to put all those things away. Uh, Richard Nixon. uh, Richard Nixon seems to have had an incredibly resentful heart at times, okay? There's a memo, maybe some of you remember this, there's a memo that was found, discovered, that was called his Secret Enemies List, okay? And Richard Nixon had compiled, he and his staff had compiled a list of 20 political enemies. And one, one of his people in his administration wrote this about this, this is a memo that had these 20 names attached and what they had done wrong. It says this memo addresses, the, I'm cleaning up the language a little bit, a lot. The memora- this memorandum addresses the matter of how we can maximize the fact of our incumbency in dealing with persons known to be active in their opposition to our administration. Stated a bit more bluntly how we can use the federal machinery to harm our political enemies. Okay. There's a story of, of one reporter, uh, Daniel, uh, Daniel Shore. Daniel Shore was a journalist and he was reading the list of names aloud on the, on the air and he came down to number 17 or 18 and he had read his own name and was a little surprised <laughs> to find himself on Nixon's top 20 political enemies list. He said he felt actually a little bit complica- uh, complimented to, to be uh, that high on the list. The Christian, the believer, cannot have a political enemies list. And earlier, earlier when I asked you to think about a conflict that you've been involved in, some of you came up with a name instantly because it's a conflict that's been ongoing with another believer. It's a conflict that's been ongoing with a family member. It's a conflict that's been ongoing with someone whom you used to be very close with, and it bothers you. The believer cannot have a political enemies list. Let me give you a couple of applications here, four things that I just encourage you to watch as you think about how to put off resentment. First of all, watch your heart. Watch what your heart does and and repent of it. As you see certain manifestations of your character coming out through your heart attitudes, say, you know what, God, I recognize that this is coming from a heart that's resentful. Please forgive me and, and deal with this resentful heart. Secondly, watch what your tongue does and hold it Uh, watch what your tongue does and hold it ask other people to hold you very accountable in your speech as you you talk about other brothers and sisters in christ and and hold other christians accountable as they begin to talk to you about your brothers and sisters in christ a person comes and says you know have you noticed daniel you know uh you know i don't i don't know about that guy hold hold on have you talked to daniel about this or are you just trying to slander his character? Maybe that's a little too strong to say. It, but, but ask me, hey, have, have you talked to Daniel about this? What's your goal in sharing it? with? Have you already talked with Daniel and, and now your desire is for us to go together and, and, and talk to Daniel about this, this sin issue? If it's not, you know, very lovingly say, I, I don't think that this is very appropriate. I'd like to hear it maybe. Maybe I have some issues that I need to deal with here as well, but but I don't think the most healthy way to foster And to get beyond bitterness here is for me to hear about it. So watch your heart and repent of wrong attitudes. Watch your tongue and and hold it. Think very carefully about why you're saying what you're saying. Watch what your mind does and change it. Oftentimes, as we begin to develop resentment in our hearts, what I've noticed is this. We're not focusing just on the actions that other people have done to us or Think that they've done towards us, but we begin to ascribe motives where, where, really, there's no way to gauge what a motive of a person is, and so, it, so we, we think something like, well, you know, did you see what did you see what uh, that guy did over there. He's so proud. I know how proud that. That's why he said, you know, you don't know, okay. But that resentment in your heart is beginning to to attribute attitudes towards that person when really you have no idea. What's in that person's heart. And so watch what your mind is doing. Your mind can really mess you up sometimes. Watch what your mind is doing as it describes motives to other people and guard it. Also, finally here as we think about about this application of how to put off resentment, watch what your time does and redeem it. You can waste a lot of time in a relationship by being angry at one another don't take a lot of time to resolve an issue. Remember earlier in Ephesians 4 it talks about not letting the anger or not letting the sun go down on your wrath. And so watch what your time is doing. Watch the clock very carefully and realize there is a finite amount of time you have in your life. Don't spend more than a moment of it that's necessary to resolve an issue with another believer. I don't know if you feel this way too, but anytime I'm in a conflict with someone at it just it bothers me it just grieves me and I, you know I, I don't like going to sleep with it with it just hanging over me. I want to get it resolved as, as quickly as possible. That should be, I believe, our, our hard attitude as we approach one another. So that's how we, we put off resentment, we put off resentment as we realize, look this is, this used to be true. I, I understand how a person who hasn't received the forgiveness of God would. would Feel this way about other people. A person who hasn't understood God's graciousness might not be gracious towards others. I, I can understand that, but, but that's not true of me anymore. Now I have, I have a new heart. I'm, I'm a new creature. God has, by his grace, called me into relationship with him. Now I, I receive the, the grace of God. We saw that in Ephesians 2. Now that I've received the, the graciousness of God, I have this new heart, and when this new heart is squeezed in relationships, grace oozes out of it let's talk about how to put on how to put on graciousness this heart that's gracious is a heart that's been forgiven this it's a heart that's experienced the life transformation of God's grace and now uh, we understand we are the prodigal son that returns to the father We are the the wicked slave who has been forgiven much and we have this new heart and this new heart is a heart that was created by God's grace and now as it's squeezed, grace just oozes out of it. That is our desire. And now we want to exude grace to other people. We have a a passion, a desire to forgive others and we don't always do it perfectly. By no means do we do this perfectly, but we have a heart that desires to do it perfectly. Perfectly. We have a heart that is grieved when we fail. We grasp the enormity of of what we've done wrong, and we fall upon the grace of God on a daily basis. Sometimes when you're counseling another believer, this other believer may may tell you, you know what, Uh, you don't understand that the things that have gone wrong in my life. You don't understand how terrible this person has treated me, how terribly this person has treated me. You're, you're counseling me, but, but you don't understand what I've been through. You don't know what I've suffered at the hands of so-and-so. And what we tell people in that circumstance is, you know what, you're right. I don't know what you've been through. You've probably been through some things that, that I've never been through. You've been through some times and some situations that, that I'm glad I've never been through by God's grace. And, and, I, and I'm sorry for what so-and-so has done to you. But you know what? As we're talking about what you need to do to this person, it doesn't matter what they've done to you. Because I guarantee you, it's not as great as the sin that you have committed against a holy God. And as you have experienced God's forgiveness... You need to talk about your heart's attitude towards another person. How do we put on graciousness? Let me uh, just look here at at, at three characteristics of a heart that's becoming more gracious. Uh, Paul says in verse 32, be kind. And That verb be is is this idea of becoming. It means this, this ongoing process of becoming more gracious. Three things here. First of all, a heart that's becoming gracious is becoming more kind. Be kind to one another. Paul says. This heart that's becoming gracious is becoming more kind. And it's not this fake kindness. It's not this kindness where you just smile at people. I'm so happy to see those people kind of put me off a little bit, actually, honestly. It's this, it's probably my own heart attitude. Uh, this is a true kindness, okay? This is a true kindness. This is the kindness that, it's not, the, it's not necessarily just a bubbly, warm person all the time, but this kind person is a person who is, who is who has a biblical kindness. They're a person who's, who's kind to their enemies. They're a person who, de- and by kind, I mean a person who desires the best for their enemies. They're a person who emul- emulates the, the kindness of God that, that leads us to repentance. It, it's a kindness that desires restoration of relationship. That's the type of, of kindness that we're talking about here tasted the lord's kindness and want others to experience that as well. and so a heart that's that's growing in graciousness and you want to ask yourself am i a heart do i have a heart that's that's been redeemed and do i see myself growing in, in graciousness? well if i'm growing in graciousness i'm growing in kindness. We also see here that a heart that is growing in, or that is becoming gracious secondly is becoming more tender-hearted. It says be kind to one another tender-hearted idea there is that a person has compassion as they look upon the, the needs of others that they're moved now i kind of came of age in in the 90s and and the the 90s culture i think was very nihilistic you know very very cynical and and hard-hearted there's a uh, uh boy i didn't mean to go here i wasn't going to give this as an illustration there's a um a cartoon <laughs> where uh, two characters are are talking to one another and one looks at the other and and says uh that they see this thing and they say and one says well that's cool and the other one says well, are you being sarcastic and he says i don't even know anymore okay uh the idea there is that that, that, that was the culture of the night very sarcastic and and very just kind of i think hard nihilistic okay N- not feeling now i think in the in the 2000s we have moved into this culture that's kind of the for lack of a better term this, this, this metrosexual uh, you know kind of uh Mambi pamby culture, okay? Uh, you know, being a youth pastor and seeing you know, some of, the, some of the, the styles of dress change, it just it really bothered me, okay? Now, so I don't think either one of those are the right way to respond to the needs of others. We're not talking about this, this unfeeling, cold, callous heart towards the, the suffering of others, but we're also not talking about just this emoting, this, um, this emo thing where you're just kind of feeling this, this, these, all these emotions towards another person, you know? You just kind of was like, get a backbone. Uh, this is totally off the text. What we're talking about here is a biblical compassion, okay? Let's bring it back to the text. A biblical tenderheartedness, a, a biblical compassion, where we look upon the needs of others, and we have the, the manliness of, of, like of, of a Jesus Christ that, that sees the needs of others and yet is moved in his spirit by them. It's the Jesus who sees the, the crowds without a shepherd. He, he's moved by compassion. It's Jesus who encounters the, the widow of Nain and, and sees her mourning, and he feels compassion, a person who's growing in graciousness is a person who's growing in their compassion and their tenderheartedness. They look upon the needs, like Jesus looked upon the needs of the leper, and feels compassion, and it stirs them to action. And as we think about our relationships to other believers, as, as we see that the wrong that's been committed to us, our, our focus isn't on the, the wrong, it's not on the sin, it's not upon how they've harmed us, our focus is upon how we can encourage them. How we care about their soul and, and the fact that what they may have done against us, if it's very, very wrong, we're concerned about the state of their soul and about their relationship to God. We have a, a tender heartedness that affects how we view them, how we care for them. A heart that's becoming gracious is becoming more kind. A heart that's becoming more gracious is becoming more tender hearted. Think about Paul in Romans chapter 9. Remember, Paul. Paul has suffered terrible things at the hand of the Judaizers. They've beaten him. They've stoned him. And in Romans chapter 9, what does he say about them? He says that he has unceasing anguish and sorrow in his heart as he considers the state of their soul. Honestly, in my flesh, I'd be like, I'm really excited as I think what awaits those people who've done me wrong. Okay? That would be my temptation to feel that. That's the sign of a heart that doesn't have graciousness. Paul, as he understands God's grace to him, says he has unceasing anguish and sorrow in his heart as he considers the eternal judgment of those who are separated from God. A heart that's becoming gracious is also becoming more forgiving. Look at what he says here in verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now, there are a lot of different ways that that people try to nuance this this term forgiveness, and depending on who you're reading or who you're listening to, perhaps they might nuance how they define forgiveness in in a different way, and and we use materials that define it, and there are even people in leadership who define it in a different way than I would define it here, but here's my understanding of forgiveness, and and all the, the practical outworkings of it are the same, but just some different nuances on defining the terms. There are two terms, two words in in Greek that are both translated forgive. And the word that's translated forgive here is is a word that also means graciousness. It's in both terms that are translated forgiveness. Carry with them this this legal idea as well. This legal releasing of of obligation to pay back. If you owed me a, a great debt and I forgave that debt legally, I was saying you are no longer required to repay that debt to me. No longer am I holding you culpable for that thing that you owed me. And so here a gracious heart understands that that God has, has granted them release from the obligation to pay him back. And so a gracious heart desires to emulate God. He says, forgive like God forgave you as God in Christ forgave you. There's a couple things here about God's forgiveness. God's forgiveness is joyful. God doesn't go, oh, man, they, they asked for forgiveness again. I've got to grant it. Fine, forgiven. God is excited about it. He, under, he, he loves people to recognize their need for him, and he is excited when his saints come to him and ask for his forgiveness. And, and you and I, as we forgive like God, as we're growing in graciousness, as we have this heart that's been transformed, we're excited when we have the opportunity to release people from their obligations to pay us back. It's It's joyful. God's forgiveness doesn't hesitate. God's forgiveness is, is extravagant. It's complete. It's it's full. It's complete release from the obligation to pay him back to restore that kind feeling toward them. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't other things that sometimes need to happen in a relationship for complete restoration to occur. For complete restoration to occur, I, I believe a person must must come and there must be reconciliation, but, but this hard attitude of, of forgiving another person, I believe, can, can happen immediately as, as we perceive a wrong done against us and love covers it. I was reading a book, or reading an excerpt from a book about the situation in Rwanda. It was called, uh, As We Forgive. In Rwanda in 1994, between 800,000 and a million uh, Rwandans were killed. Most of them were, were the, part of the Tutsi group. Some of them were, were Hutu sympathizers, but they were all killed by these militant Hutus, 800,000 to a million of them. And this book chronicles stories years later and, and during that time of, of forgiveness that, that's happened within the church. One of the stories they tell is about a man named John. John was going around in, in prisons preaching to the Hutus about Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that he offers. As he was proclaiming this, this message of forgiveness, uh, someone came to him and told him about his niece. Now, in this, this setting, I'm not going to tell you what happened to his niece, except to say this, uh, she was tortured in horrific ways and murdered in a, in a terrible way. He collapsed when they described what had happened to his precious niece at the hands of these Hutu. John tells in this book, that he wasn't sure what to do next. The thought of taking the message of Jesus Christ to these men who were part of the same group who had been responsible for these terrible things that had been done to his niece sickened him, literally. He had no stomach to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. He didn't want them to repent. He wanted terrible things to happen to them. Then Then he says, he pictured Jesus Christ on the cross. And he remembered his sufferings. He remembered the blasphemous words spoken against Jesus. He remembered his torture. And he could imagine Jesus on the cross, beaten, bloodied, bruised, uttering the word, forgive. With renewed vigor, he continued proclaiming that message of God's grace to people who had wronged him and his family in ways that I can't even imagine. And he took that forgiveness in his heart and he founded an orphanage for both Hutu and Tutsi children where they could both come together and learn about the grace of God. I want you to think about your own life. Think about where you are this morning. What has God done in your life through his grace, through his forgiveness, to bring you to this point? What are the beautiful things in your life, the, the beautiful fruit in your life that's a result of God's forgiveness of you? Now, what has God going to do in others lives as you exhibit that same graciousness to them how is God going to bear some some beautiful fruit as you joyfully offer your forgiveness to others how is the graciousness that comes out of your heart when squeezed going to result in the glory of God in other people's lives Let your hearts be so soft and full of grace that when they're squeezed, they they ooze graciousness. Let me give you just a few things here to do to, to put on graciousness. First of all, I'd encourage you, confess your sins regularly and specifically. It's easy to forget about the grace that we've received when we fail to ask God specifically for forgiveness. If you spend some time each day just... God, just thinking through your day and how you failed, God, in so many ways, I think it's going to be harder for you to hold things against others. Uh, Secondly, pray for those whom you've wronged or who have wronged you. Pray for their repentance. Pray for good things to happen to them. Allow God to create within your heart a desire for the best for them. i also encourage you to develop an understanding of other people's positions Perhaps you've been in a breach of relationship with someone, and I just encourage you to, to turn the tables and say, can I, art- can, can I articulate this situation in the same way that they would articulate it? Do I have an understanding of their position? I encourage you to do that, to put yourselves in their shoes and, and strive to believe the best in them. I encourage you to forgive. Forgive even now in your heart. And by forgive, I mean this. Release them, another person, no matter the wrong committed against you, release that person from the obligation to pay you back for what they've done. Now, reconciliation is still going to need to take place apart from you forgiving them. Don't say, you know, I've forgiven them, so we never need to talk about it again. But now, even now in your heart, I would encourage you to release them from that obligation to make restitution to you. So, you know, there's nothing this person needs to do to me in order for me to have warm feelings and desire their best anymore. Uh, God, please work with my heart and cause me to, to have a love for them that supersedes the wrong that they've done to me that flows out of a heart that's been forgiven much.